0: In our last episode, we shared the first half of a conversation that Jonathan and I had with Justine Bacardi, an internationally acclaimed author and past editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar UK. The conversation was much too interesting to cut down for time, and we think that you'll enjoy learning from her as much as we did. In the second half of the interview, we talked to Justine about Paris during the Second World War, the impact of Nazi occupation on the French fashion industry, and how that war changed the fashion industry forever. We also talk about Coco Chanel and why her complicated story shouldn't be a reason to write her out of history. This willingness to openly examine difficult subjects and the considerate way Justine unravels pieces of history to both frame and tell a story all make her a fascinating person to have a conversation with. I'm sure you'll agree. When we left off, Justine was explaining the significance of Catherine Dior's service in the French resistance during the Second World War. Now, let's dive back in and get a little deeper into the true story of Miss Dior. We'll also explore the relationships we all build with the clothing we wear, a subject Justine dives into more deeply in her best-selling memoir, My Mother's Wedding Dress, The Life and Afterlife of Clothes.
1: And then women were still marginalized. And, and I think that clearly they made massively different choices during the Second World War. What Catherine Dior did was highly unusual. Out of a population of 40 million people, there were only, when Catherine Dior joined the French Resistance, there were only 100,000 active members of the French Resistance. That's a fraction of 1% of the population and then i think that chanel is often scapegoated because she had an affair with a german officer but 99.9% of the french population during the occupation did what they had to do to to stay alive and to save the people she they loved now i'm not an apologist for chanel's choices i'm half jewish and during my research into into Miss Dior, I went to Ravensbrück concentration camp, I went to the slave labour camps where Catherine Dior and other young women were deported and where many, many people died. And in my own extended family, I lost people in the Holocaust in the extermination camps. So I'm, I'm not here to whitewash Chanel. She made an appallingly bad choice in having an affair with a German officer, And of course, we'll never know her true motivation. But certainly, the catalyst for this involvement was to save her nephew, who may well have been her son, who was had been a soldier in the French army. He'd been fighting for the French army, and then after he'd been taken prisoner after the successful invasion of France, and he was in a he was basically dying in an internment camp in Germany. And Chanel was desperate to get him out. So, I think that before one starts hurling abuse, as sometimes is now happening on social media, oh, Chanel was a Nazi. I think it's important to understand first what it was that people in France in general did. Also, there were many male couturiers who were, did I would say, far worse or certainly no better than Chanel in terms of collaboration. There were was active collaboration by Jacques Fath, Marcel Rocha, Balenciaga. Nobody ever, and they were hailed in the media aftermath of the Second World War and when they died and it was geniuses. And nobody ever now says, oh, well, Christabel Balenciaga was a, was a fascist or it just doesn't, their names don't appear. Hugo Boss, you know, right? Is Chanel held? Does she have to be, I think it's very reductive, this idea, she was a genius but and a flawed person do you do we have to be morally pure in order to mm. be a genius? No, I mean you would have to write off so many people and obviously including Picasso Shakespeare, obviously Chanel, but very often women I think are still judged morally in a way that a man might not be so Yeah, Chanel made some disastrously bad choices. And she was a genius. She was flawed
2: and she was a genius. I'm really glad you touched on that because I think for me as a historian, it always bothers me when we get, especially these days, as you alluded to, with cancel culture, for example, this idea, particularly with Coco Chanel, the supreme irony that I find is is that in many online spaces like TikTok, the minute you try to have a discourse about Coco Chanel, it just gets shut down yeah. almost immediately. And the irony being that one comment I often see on TikToks and things like this about it is she was not saying it, but given the Wertheimers, you're keeping money out of a Jewish Owned company yes. by not supporting Chanel, which is a unique paradox to that situation, which I think I like.
1: And Chanel had a relationship that stretched back to 1921. It was very complicated. Some of her closest friends and business associates, as it happens, were Jewish. And the Vertimers family still owns Chanel. It's still a privately owned family held company. I'm always Open to having conversations with people about Chanel and having spent literally years in the archives, both the Chanel archives, but also the archives of German intelligence, British intelligence, French intelligence, the French police, the German police, MI6 during and after the Second World War, I do feel I really know what I'm talking about. And if the conversation is just closed down by saying Chanel is a Nazi, that it's, it's just sad because it's an interesting conversation to have. It's a pity to not be allowed to have it. Absolutely. And I think it speaks to the power and importance
2: of fashion as lens and fashion as lens for dissecting and exploring complex history.
1: Yes, and you don't it's, have it's, to, it doesn't have to be about one thing or the other. You don't have to say, I think that with Chanel, she sometimes demonized as Chanel the Nazi, like the worst person of the 20th century, in terms of women often, or there's a hagiography and she's made into the secular, saint of fashion. Neither of these extremes seem to me to be particularly helpful in looking at Chanel as a very complex woman, and who changed the way we dress, and whose ideas and conception of modernity and modernism, given that she was a peer and was working alongside Cocteau, Picasso, Dali, the Ballet Russe, Diaghilev, Stravinsky. If we want to look at modernism, and it's 2023, you know, it's 100 years really since you see the birth of modernism, whether it's in literature, in poetry, in art, in architecture, we see the birth of modernism obviously in fashion with Chanel, but also her input into art, ballet, theatre, is film, is really important because these people, she was literally working alongside with Picasso, with Cocteau, with Stravinsky on shared projects. So by closing that conversation down, it means you can't really have a nuanced conversation about the the link the shared landscape between modernist art and fashion at the birth of modernism or between modernist music in the form of Stravinsky and the ballet russe and clothing design so it's it's just it's it would be a pity if young people on, don't don't have the space aren't given the space to have those conversations
0: no it's it's very interesting all of this I mean I'm fascinated by this same similar time period as you are and there's so much in there that I see us repeating right now and I see dangers of us repeating in the future and I think one of the really magical things about studying history is everyone always says we have to study so that we don't repeat our mistakes and I think if that's a fact and if it's true, which I believe it is, then the inverse sure also true. has to be true, which means there's solutions, and we could be finding solutions. Solutions exist. We don't yes, have to recreate the wheel. History never exactly repeats itself. It's
1: more like a, those old kaleidoscopes that I had as a child, where you change it and it forms a, a similar but different pattern. So you can see how patterns reassemble in ways that are reminiscent of previous historical eras. And we have to be allowed also to remember and to explore the things that we forgot to remember. And women like Catherine Dior, the story of history is still his story. Her story, her stories are still often forgotten. And when you look at the history of war, for example, First and Second World War, is nearly always told through the lens of men, through soldiers, generals, politicians. Women are still all too often excluded, despite the fact that they played very important roles in the resistance and also in serving in the armed forces in the, in the Second World War too. So by closing down the conversation around fashion during this very uncomfortable and traumatic period of fashion history during the occupation of Paris and Europe during the Second World War, we we close down ways of looking at the choices that people made, but also we then become unable to explore the great silences. That prevailed in the aftermath of the Second World War. And it's interesting because I'm a British writer, but the story of Catherine Dior and women like her had not been told in France. And a long-standing silence prevailed in France about the truth about the occupation because it was too painful. First of all, it was too painful to discuss, and then it became too painful to remember because there was so much shame and humiliation attached because so many people were forced or or made choices that they would later feel profoundly ashamed of their choices because they were living in an occupied country now we see none of us I mean I haven't and I assume you have haven't I haven't lived under occupation but there are Parts of Ukraine where people are living under occupation. There are countries right across the world where people are living in oppressive regimes. Now, I think that if somebody in Russia today, for example, decided to make that brave decision to try and join the resistance or find ways of resisting, we know what terrible punishments would be inflicted on them. So the choices that people are making in our own day. You can you can understand better if we are allowed to discuss what happened around the world in the in the Second World War.
0: Yeah, I I love this time period. I could talk about this literally (laughs) forever. I always say my favorite era in fashion history is between the very end of the Second World War and like the moment before Dior's famous nineteen forty seven show. There's just so much that happens in that space, and it's. I mean, it's wealthy with information and stories. And yeah.
1: And in fact, so- the next book that I'm working on is is looking at that period. And it's about Fourier's. And I thought, oh God, I must now know. I can't find another new story. But there are so many more st- stories in that period. Partly because if you're looking at anything through the lens of if people were of course everybody was affected by invasion or working in the resistance or with the Germans or against the Germans or so much of this these archives have been have been sealed you haven't been able to look at them for a long time because there was the 70 year history sorry the 70 year rule where whether it was british or french or german or american intelligence that these are only just opening up these archives to researchers. Yes, and that's my dream. I want
0: to be (laughs) as many archives as I possibly can. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Oh, it's such joy. It's so much fun. One of the questions we always like to ask, we always want to know a fashion memory. Is there something in your life when you were a child that really made that link to you and clothing? taught you how important it was personally yes got so many
1: well obviously there was my mother's wedding dress and then my mother so I was born in London and grew up in in London and my mother I mean she was very young she was 21 when I was born and she was very she was the epitome of radical chic and she had long red hair and She would buy, some of her clothes came from Bieber and Carnaby Street, but she would also, we would go to, and it's still one of my favorite shops in London, it's called Liberty. And Liberty Fabrics, she would buy remnants, so at the end of a roll, and then she would make clothes for herself and for my sister and I. And they were so imaginative and she would have her sewing machine and then because it was the 1960s, we would maybe have some beautiful little Liberty print dress and then she would s- sew bells around the bottom, so very 60s. But she also took my sister and I, and it's one of my most vivid early memories, to see the Rolling Stones free concerts in Hyde Park, which would have been in the late 60s. and And I remember, and we were wearing... These dresses that she'd made for us that had the little bells around the bottom so we tinkled as we walked and then seeing Mick Jagger on the stage and he was wearing a, a white dress and I was so struck by that as a little girl he was a, a boy I mean he seemed like a grown-up man to me and he's wearing this this white dress and it just just, it's stuck in my mind so clearly. So yeah, those clothes that she wore, the clothes that, that we wore as children. And then she also crocheted me with silver lurex. I mean, very, it sounds like something that that Courage would have designed, a crocheted silver little skirt. And when she first made it for me, it would have come down to my knee, my knees. And then and then I just carried on wearing it until I was a. Uh, I was still wearing it when I was a teenager, by which point it was a very, very short skirt, but it just seemed to be infinitely adaptable to whatever age I was. Oh, so she gave me a I sense, uh, which I discovered from her, of the pleasure of clothes. I think the other really important memory for me is reading. And I love the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe books. And... I completely believed in them, and my sister and I would go and sit in my mother's wardrobe, Mm. waiting to go into Narnia. But we would we believed in it so greatly that we did go into Narnia, and I believe that. So, so the wardrobe became. I mean, it was a place of imagination and magic in so many different ways. It became that there was there was real magic in there in these clothes, but then it was also this hidden space where we could play together these imaginative games that would take us to otherworldly landscapes. And I think that I'm passionate about great fashion photography and some of the great illustration that is labelled as fashion illustration or fashion photography. It's not all by fashion photographers or or fashion illustrators, there has been wonderful paintings and photographs that have been created by practitioners who are not working just in that one field. But I think that idea where you can create an otherworldly landscape is wonderful, as well as I have massive respect for the reportage photographers working in the medium of fashion who can, in a black and white Picture capture somebody a fleeting second in time, somebody leaping through the air. Some of those abaddon pictures that appeared in Harper's Bazaar in you know the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, and then in the nineteen fifties, where Harper's Bazaar was really at the cutting edge of using reportage. But I also do love the the illustrations of people like Cocteau, Christian Barad, Marcel Vett, Arte. Where there is so much, René grow that wonderful imaginative landscape that is evoked just in a few imaginative sweeps of of a pen or a of a of, or even a pencil.
0: Yeah, they're very emotional, right? It may, it, you feel something when you yes. look at an image like that, or you have a yeah. drawing like that, painting. Yeah, it's transportative. It's
1: yes, and the art of
0: illustration, I hope that it survives
1: because looking in, in in both my Chanel book and my Dior book, I used a lot of of illustration as well as photography. And of course Dior was a great fashion illustrator. That's how he began his career. He began as a as a gallerist, as an art dealer, and he was way ahead of his time and was showing the works of DALI and surrealists just after the Wall Street crash, where you could barely give their work away. I mean he sold a One of the last painting he sold was a DALI painting that went for $250 at a time when the dollar's value was very low and later subsequently sold for $250 million. But he his art gallery went bust and he had to earn a living. And so he taught himself to be a fashion illustrator. But his love originally was of art. But he needed to make a living. So he became an illustrator when illustration was the primary means of visual representation both in newspapers and magazines of fashion but it was also when couturiers used illustrations often as the starting point for then what would become a collection or a pattern or and yeah so Dior began as an illustrator and then and then began to sell his illustrations to couture houses and moved into into design that way so so i hope despite ai and people being able to create anything in a digital sphere that people don't lose that love of picking up a pen or a pencil or a watercolour and and drawing or painting
2: absolutely i i share that specifically why the little red dress was illustrated the way it was this yes. not a traditional fashion illustration i think it's to me, it is an essential part of the magic uh, that is fashion, and I think from just observationally, even with like Gen Z on TikTok and things like this, there is still an appreciation out there. And as much as the immediacy of some of these formats that we spoke to earlier may lead to misinformation, it also leads to, I think, for some, an accelerated appreciation if they are illustratively inclined and, and they're able so to go down the road.
1: Wonderful, the way, for example, that that talk. It's thank I mean this this the sale of books has never been stronger and of, of hardback print books with beautiful illustrations and photography and that is partly down to TikTok, where people are sharing their passion for a, a hardback book of whether it's sort of illustration or history or short stories or poetry that they've discovered and then they can share that passion via TikTok. That Makes me feel so optimistic. Yeah,
0: people want to read.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: And that's a great way to bring us to our final two questions. What you just spoke on was very much to me about interdisciplinary talent when we talk about, again, Dior and things like this. For you, given your success in both writing and as an editor, venn diagram of skills would you lay out for writing versus editing and how would you advise an aspiring young writer or editor to hone their craft what's what's essential
1: well just write and write and write and write and read and read and read and read i think you made the point earlier that if you want to be a good writer you have to be a good reader first of all first and foremost and there is a cr- traditional career pattern. Whereas, if you if you are a good writer who also has a strong visual sense, you you tend to evolve into an editor. So, if you can find a way of weaving together words and images, then editing becomes almost, I mean, it, it becomes second nature. I think, but it is a craft and. Like any craft, there is natural talent, but it's also you know, it's maybe 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. It is that practicing. And there's that, I can't remember how many hours it is, but somebody, there's been various studies and it started with the Beatles. How many mm. thousands of hours did the Beatles practice for? And then were they playing in grimy little clubs in Hamburg before they became brilliant? And I think the same thing is is true for both writing and editing. I mean, I was doing both as a child. I was making these little books and magazines with my sister. We were a team of two and the readership of two, and we were doing everything. And and I carried on doing that. I did that as as a student. I studied English literature at Cambridge University, but I was also doing student journalism. And also this was, I was... Love music, and this was a time of fanzines where you, people were making little handmade magazines. So, I think it's just doing it. And then, of course, what is so liberating is such a democracy is that people can do this in so many different ways online. So, whether it's starting your own Substack column as a writer and reaching an audience that way, or doing it through tiktok or instagram or probably social media platforms i've never even heard of but i think that that you ideally if you want to be the editor of a title like harper's bazaar or vogue i mean they there may come a time when they only exist digitally but thus far print is proving very robust and certainly if you look at books I remember a time maybe 10 or 15 years ago when everyone was saying, oh, there won't be any books. Everybody will just read things on a tablet or on a Kindle. In fact, the sale of Kindles is right down and the sale of print books is soaring and it's being driven by a younger generation. So I think that if you want, I mean, obviously people have to do what they love and I said at the very beginning it's finding your own most authentic voice in telling a story now for some people that may be purely digital and for others it may be purely whether as a writer or as an artist literally in this material tactile way but I think that what is interesting is that I have friends who are artists but who through Instagram have reached a wider audience you know if they've got an exhibition coming up so they can say look this is where my exhibition is going to be and then people can come and buy their paintings and similarly as a writer my obviously my, my most in-depth work as a writer is not on Instagram but when i've got a if i've got a book coming out i can tell people here's the book and if you'd like to buy it or if you'd like to come and hear me speak either in person at a museum or doing a podcast like the one that we're doing today through, I mean, Instagram happens to be my preferred channel of choice. That may change, but I mean, every so often I get infuriated by Instagram, but nevertheless, it is a very easy way of reaching people. And so I don't think one should ever just look at it in a narrow way to try and have a truly holistic approach to what one is trying to to create and express it should that's what 360 means to me wow, I love that
2: yeah I couldn't say it better myself I think finding authentic voice and your authentic voice just it takes that experimentation I, for me with our work especially with kids and young people it's about encouraging creative play and exploration across medium and so I, I think that's beautifully said and also leads me to my final question, which we ask of all of our guests. Do you have a book recommendation that you feel deeply inspired, impacted you, or your trajectory, or was instrumental in your success in getting to where you are today?
1: It's so hard trying to narrow it down to one. And I've been thinking about if this. We can take uh, more than
0: one. Um, Jonathan okay. and I well, we have helped the publishing industry with their numbers. <laughs> all
1: the yeah, books we've I mean... There's a, a wonderful book called I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. And it was written during the Second World War. It was written in America, but it's about two sisters growing up in this crumbling old castle. And they've got a very eccentric right of father. I had a very eccentric right of father. And they, clothes come into it. They don't have any money. And they have to find ways of finding their heart's desire. And that includes some very beautiful clothes. But the way that they they come of age, I mean, it's a great coming of age novel. And clothes play a very important part in it, but in very unexpected ways. And it's got some scenes in it that made me laugh and laugh and laugh. And they, they still make me laugh now. But there's also scenes of, such poignancy about heartbreak and and first love so yeah given that this we we want to reach young people i'm going to recommend i capture the castle by dodie smith that's d-o-d-i-e smith and she is far more famous as the writer of 101 dalmatians amazing thank
2: you so much justine again for everyone listening our guest today was the amazing Justine Piccadilly, and you can learn all about her in the show notes make sure to check out the accompanying worksheet of course like all of our episodes this season for Little Red Village and make sure to leave us a review and give us all the stars obviously thank you so much for joining us today Justine thank and you. as always it was wonderful thank it you was such a pleasure absolutely For today's footnotes, we're going to start with the French occupation, because we cannot discuss these three women, Coco Chanel, Catherine Dior, and Justine Picardy, without discussing the French occupation, which lasted from 1940 to 1944 until American forces liberated Paris. German forces occupied just under half of France and took over Paris and the government. Its effects on fashion history, luxury houses, collections, and French culture and people overall cannot be understated. Fashion and writing play a major part of developing the field of fashion as we know it, beyond amazing leaders like Justin Picardy. Poet, playwright, and novelist Jean Cocteau was truly a jack-of-all-trades and prolific cultural icon contributing to the development of surrealism, Dadaism, and the avant-garde. Friends with everyone from Proust to Picasso and Satie to D'Aguilev, Cocteau was a trailblazer and connector of early 20th century creatives, as well as one himself. And finally, Justine mentions that her mom had clothes from Biba, Do you know what Biba was? It was originally a mail-order fashion catalog that went what we would call viral today for a pink gingham dress. That dress exploded and with the money from it, they were able to open a boutique. That boutique and its success led to the store, Big Biba. This wonderland was a seven story fashion fever dream, including housewares and even fine dining at its rainbow restaurant. It was the place to see and be seen With its art deco interior and carnival of departments, each one an immersive experience all its own. If it was around today, it would definitely be filled with influencers. That's it for today's footnotes. Make sure to check out all the articles and resources related to the episode in the show notes on our blog at littleredfashion.com slash blog. If you enjoyed this episode, rate, review, and subscribe to Little Red Village on your podcast platform of choice and share it with the fashion nerds in your life. Remember,
1: fashion is for everyone.